some major news from the Middle East today, and I'll respond to my good friend, Rabbi Shmuley. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Yeah, this, this really is news, big news from the Middle East. United Arab Emirates and Israel, with the help of President Trump, have reached historic peace accords. Major big news from the Middle East, lots of implications. We'll get into that. I do want to comment very briefly, because it's Thirdly Jewish Thursday, I won't get into things at length, on uh, Joe Biden's selection of Kamala Harris for vice president. We will talk about that very briefly today and get into it more in the days ahead, God willing. And uh, your Jewish-related calls, any Jewish-related question of any kind, be you friend or foe, give me a call, 866-348-7884. And uh, my dear friend Rabbi Shmuley posted something a few minutes long on Facebook a couple days ago about Jesus and atonement and Judaism. So I'm going to respond. He took the time to do that, a reference to debate we had. So I'm going to respond to my dear friend, Rabbi Shmuel. And again, any Jewish-related question, 866-34-TRUTH. Okay, before we get into the news from the Middle East and Israel, uh, former Vice President Biden's selection of Kamala Harris, not a big surprise, and that it was very clear that he was going to choose a female vice president and most likely a person of color. So that narrowed the potential in terms of who would be viable. And in choosing Kamala Harris, obviously the, the things in her favor, she's a senator, she did run for president, she's articulate, and she's fully liberal. In fact, it has now rightly been said that running for president or vice president, she is the most pro-abortion candidate of all time. Now, she didn't do well in the primaries at all. She dropped out even before the the early primaries. She was polling very, very low. And after a strong start in the debate, she got savaged in one debate, never really recovered from that, and had gone after Joe Biden pretty strongly. Uh, So many would say there's negative baggage, and she's so far to the left, it's negative. But the bigger point would be that I don't know a lot of people, and, and you hate to say this, but I don't know a lot of people that see a long-term Biden presidency with his age and, and perhaps failing cognitive abilities. So it's a more important vice presidential pick than just about any we've had, because this person could very well be the president in a short period of time. So some have said it's now, it is now Trump versus Harris. In any case, may God's will be done. May his wisdom be given to his people. May we vote and act in the fear of the Lord. I really encourage you to get my book, Evangelicals at the Crossroads Will Be Passed, The Trump Test. One of my colleagues said he just read the book in two days. And, and what pleased him so much was that both sides are laid out so clearly why people want to vote for Trump, not vote for Trump. And then the godly position that I call all believers to. So we're hearing that consistently. I think you'll find it super helpful. 
You see, you're just trying to sell a book. What do you think I wrote the book? I wrote the book so you'd read the book. If I could press a button and download the information into your brains by doing that, I'd do it with joy. Of course I want you to buy the book because I wrote the book, spent months and months of research and hard work. And, and each review so far is coming in five stars, so we're real pleased just the initial first responses we're getting. But you can get it on our website, sdrbrown.org, or over on Amazon. You can get the ebook there. All right. Why is this deal in the Middle East so significant? And what are some of the implications? Because part of the deal was that Israel would freeze its plans to annex most of the West Bank, so-called West Bank, or the uh, Judea-Samaria in, in biblical times. That this was something Netanyahu government has been talking about. There was a lot of opposition to it, especially from the Palestinians. And what's interesting is that there was a time when the surrounding Muslim nations showed more solidarity with the Palestinians while at the same time not welcoming them for the most part into their countries, rather treating them as pariahs that should live in refugee camps and live in squalor to Israel's lasting shame and to make Israel look bad. This is part of a known strategy. I'm not telling you some conspiracy thing that I heard. This is a known strategy. But at the same time, there was solidarity with these people because, after all, the Jews displaced them. After all, the Jews are the enemy, and they're occupying Palestinian territory. So there was solidarity with them. As the years have gone on, especially more recently, the solidarity hasn't been as strong. And Saudi Arabia, for example, and some of these other oil-rich Middle Eastern nations have showed less sympathy for their ploy and felt, hey, you're, you're not doing anything to really help. You are not really aiding and abetting the peace process, and, and, and you are not looking at the larger picture. Again, I'm speaking in, in generalizations here. But in the Middle East, don't forget, you have factions there as well. And within Islam, you have the Sunni versus Shia faction. So a country like Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, these are Sunni countries, and the large majority of Muslims worldwide are Sunni. But Iran is a Shia stronghold. Iraq is actually majority Shia, even though there's a strong Sunni representation. But Iran, very, very strongly Shiite. And Iran and Saudi Arabia are real enemies. And part of the civil war in Lebanon, part of the civil war in Yemen, was Iran versus Saudi Arabia. So this is also a way, by saying we're standing with Israel, to join together pushing back against Iran. So let me read some of an article to you. Uh, This was posted on Yahoo News. Wrap up one, Israel UAE agreed to normalize relations with help from Trump. Trump definitely helped in this process. So Reuters reporting, uh, Israel and the United Arab Emirates announced an agreement on Thursday that will lead to a full normalization of diplomatic relations between the two states, a move that reshapes the order of Middle East politics from the Palestinian issue to Iran. Under the accord which U.S. President Donald Trump helped broker, Israel has agreed to suspend annexing areas of the occupied West Bank as it had been planning to do, White House officials said. It also firms up opposition to regional power Iran, which the UAE, Israel, and the United States view as the main threat in the conflict-riven region. You know the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Now, Now, look at this. This gives you some of the context. Israel had signed peace agreements with Egypt in 1979, and Jordan 
1994. But the UAE, along with most other Arab nations, did not recognize Israel and had no former diplomatic or economic relations with it until now. So who knows what was going on behind the scenes with diplomats from Israel and UAE and some of these other nations or business people. But this is now major. I mean, this is happens every few decades. The agreement was the product of lengthy discussions between Israel, the UAE and the United States that accelerated recently. White House officials said a joint statement issued by the three nations said Trump, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Abu Dhabi's Crown Prince Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed had, quote, agreed to the full normalization of relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. This historic diplomatic breakthrough will advance peace in the Middle East region and is a testament to the bold diplomacy and vision of the three leaders and the courage of the United Arab Emirates and Israel to chart a new path that will unlock the great potential in the region. All right. On the one hand, it's great news. Anytime you can sign an agreement with a historic enemy, anytime you can join hands financially, politically, diplomatically, economically, any way that you can join hands with those that in the past did not recognize your existence or would have wanted to see you wiped out, that's, that's a breakthrough. That's positive. So I, I think that's wonderful. Now, what about the annexation? Well, if, if Israel was willing to step back from that, it would feel that this was in the largest strategic interest at the moment because Iran keeps threatening, and there's a lot of saber-rattling from Iran. And, and of course, uh, let's, let's tie in the fact that Iran funds Hezbollah, and Hezbollah is, is perched right on the northern borders of Israel. And although no one can make a definitive clear forensic connection to this point between Hezbollah and the horrific explosion, explosions in, in Beirut last week, the devastating explosions leaving several hundred thousand homeless and several hundred killed and thousands injured, just devastating a country that's already being shaken. There is a very strong argument that could be made that Hezbollah controlled the port, some called it Hezbollah port, the port of, of Beirut, and that they have used ammonium nitrate, which was being stored there in, in massive quantity, 2,500 tons, that they have used that over the decades in their terrorist activity. And the reason that the Lebanese government was unable to get the ammonium nitrate disposed was because Hezbollah wanted to use it against Israel. So you can make a very strong case for that. I've read some detailed arguments in terms of the history and the current situation there, again, can't prove it categorically. But the question is, why was it allowed to stay there? It's, it's volatile. It's, you could obviously be threatened with a blast like this. So in any case, when, when you have the reality of Hezbollah, the reality of, of how murderous they are, funded by Iran, and Israel saying, okay, this is a deal that makes sense for us to work together with UAE, UAE and perhaps other nations following in that way, Obviously, America, Israel feel it's positive and worth it. Now, the only reason or the main reason that I don't get more excited about this is because ultimately I don't see a lasting peace in the Middle East until the Messiah comes. I, I see a false peace, meaning 
At some time before he comes, Israel will be dwelling in relative safety, and Israel will feel that it is safe from its neighbors, and that there is a genuine peace, obviously an Antichrist type of peace, and that sudden destruction will come on the whole world, and that God will then fight for Israel and deliver his people. But I, I don't put ultimate trust in an earthly peace deal, but I'm glad when there can be peace. Being a peacemaker is a good thing. Seeing historic hostilities done away with is a good thing. Each nation can help the other in betterment of things for their people. That's a good thing. And com- excuse me, common stance together against Iran, that's a good thing. Beyond that, I'm not looking at this as odd. This is the key to a lasting peace. That happens when Messiah returns. All right, straight to your calls when we come back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to the Line of Fire. I'm clearly Jewish Thursday. Michael Brown here. Phone lines are open with your Jewish-related questions. During the two-minute break I had, I was responding to emails from a counter-missionary rabbi. Seemed like a good thing to do on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. So let's go over to Phoenix, Arizona. James, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. Uh, hey. I called in a while. Uh, thanks for taking my call. You bet. Um, my question my question was uh, the debate you had with Tovia Singer. It was a portion where you guys had like this little friendly bet where you said if you can show him a reference of, uh, of the Messiah and the, the suffering servant, yeah. and then you guys got, and then after that it kind of cut off, and then when you guys came back, we never got the answer to that. Is that something that you can answer? What 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 reference did you give Tovia Singer? Yes, surely. So in the early 1990s, uh, debated Rabbi Tovia Singer on Sid Roth's radio show. A CBN also brought in a camera crew to video the whole thing. And Tovia said that he would sign the release afterwards, but when it was done, he refused to. So that's a shame because people could have watched that on TV and it would have been archived. But during the debate, we got into the subject of Isaiah 53. And he said that there were, so that's Isaiah 52.13 to 53.12, that there were no rabbinic sources that attributed uh, the suffering, that, that read that as, Messiah, son of David, who was suffering, that if any of them read it of, of the Messiah suffering, it was Messiah, son of Joseph. So we, we made this friendly wager that if he was right, then I would become an Orthodox Jew, and if I was right, he would become a Messianic Jew. Obviously, it's going to take more, more than that, you know, uh, to, to change your heart and life. But what happened was I subsequently presented the sources to him, and he subsequently apologized for getting that wrong. And Sid Roth and I did a follow-up where we talked about that. Uh, of course, he'd put a different spin on it today, but that is, that is accurately what happened. And unfortunately, since then, he's refused to debate me. It's going on 30 years now, but my door remains open all the time. Also, we are just in the early stages of producing a series of videos that will go through many of his videos online as, as he has hurt the faith of some and confused others. 
So we want to address these things, and then we'll look at some other counter-missionary rabbis with material online. But we're going to go through them point by point by point in a systematic way, in a clear way, expose errors, misinformation, even downright deception, and point people to the truth about the Messiah. So we're in the early stages, but we've actually started recording, and we're eager to get this series out to the general public. Okay. Uh, but can, can you give any, uh, any of those sources that you gave to him? Or, or is that something you want to hold off on? Oh, no, no, no. It's not, it's not a secret. Okay, so um, one thing is there is a, a Rabbi Moshe Ibn Crispin that was cited, uh, that is cited in a major compilation that was put together by a Jewish and Christian scholar in the 1800s. But there is dispute as to whether he was an accepted rabbi or not. So we put that to the side. Um, there are... Uh, the uh, Nachmanides, so Moses ben Nachman, so uh, after Maimonides is Nachmanides, uh, he said that the correct interpretation is it refers to Israel, but he said to prove a point, I will go through all of Isaiah 53 as if it applied to Messiah, son of David, and still show that the Messiah, son of David, doesn't have to die. So in any case, he, um, he does that, so it's not his first position. His first position is it applies to Israel. But to prove a point in a medieval debate, he said, okay, I'm going to show you how it could apply to Messiah, son of David, and still wouldn't say that he would die. So that was, and, and Tovia Singer's point was that even if I could find ones that pointed to this referring to the Messiah, son of David, that it doesn't say that he would die. And that was the point he made. But that's not the point that he said during the debate. Um, if you look at a famous Midrash, Midrash Tanhuma, to 5213 to 50 uh, 5213 to 5215 so 52 chapter 52 verses 13 to 15 about the messiah's exaltation after great suffering that is applied clearly to messiah son of david because it says he's going to be greater than abraham moses or even the ministering angels uh, and so that's the beginning of the isaiah 53 text and it does speak of his suffering there and then interestingly, much later, uh, so in, in our day, followers of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who believed that he was the Messiah, he died in 94, 1994, uh, they believed he was son of David, uh, so a descendant of David. And interestingly, they interpreted Isaiah 53 with reference to him. Uh, they actually said that when he got a stroke and couldn't speak, that he's like a lamb before a slaughter, he, he won't open his mouth that this was now being fulfilled in him. So yeah, there are different texts that, that could have been pointed to, but in, in any case, uh, he, he misspoke and, and then subsequently said, well, he meant to say thus and such, didn't really say that, and we, of course, forgave him for making the commitment. We didn't take it seriously anyway, you know. But yeah, unfortunately, since then, he kind of... Uh, focused not just on helping Jewish people that he felt were led astray by faith in Jesus, but attacking the faith of Christians and telling Christians they needed to flee from the New Testament and from belief in Jesus. So we kind of shifted some of what he did, which made it more dangerous with some of the deception and misinformation he's putting out, or limited information where you don't get the whole picture. So that's what's made it more dangerous now as, as more people can be reached on internet 
And that's why we felt it was important that we just demolish the misinformation in a, in a series of specific videos. But James, I didn't know if it was the James from Phoenix, but you normally have a good Hebrew question. <laughs> I appreciate the question today. Thank you. All right. God bless you. 866-34-TRUTH. Yesterday, I, I spoke first half of the broadcast about the importance of apologetics the importance of the defense of the faith. I want you to take a look with me in Acts, the 18th chapter, the end of Acts, the 18th chapter. We know that Saul of Tarsus, after meeting the risen Messiah, debated fellow Jews in the synagogue, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. What does it say about Apollos, Acts chapter 18, and the end of the chapter. It, it's a really interesting passage there. It, it tells us that he mightily refuted the Jewish people, he himself was a Jew, in public debate, all right? So Acts 18.28, for he powerfully refuted the Jewish people in public, demonstrating to the Scriptures that the Messiah was Yeshua. But let's back it up. What does it mean for? When Apollos wanted to cross over to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Upon arrival, he greatly helped those who by grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jewish people in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that the Messiah was Yeshua. So that's how he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. God had opened their hearts, they had put their trust in Jesus the Messiah, and obviously Jews in the synagogue and God-fearers in the synagogue are hearing and witnessing these debates, and Apollos helped them in winning the debates, in refuting the arguments, and that strengthened their faith. I have partaken in many debates over the years, and I remember one debate in particular in New York City. We were supposed to have a very large venue, and it was a place normally used for Jewish lectures and meetings. Last minute, the room got canceled on us. We knew exactly why. We had to find another location last minute, it seated maybe 300 people, but the place was packed way beyond there, and then several hundred outside that couldn't get in. It was my first debate with Rabbi Shmuley. This one, before it, we had to agree not to release it in video, etc. Since then, we've, we've released our videos in video and other forms. But what happened was, and for whatever reason, Rabbi Shmuley didn't want it released, just have that debate in, in person, that was that. But in any case, Rabbi Shmuley went first, and then I went after him, and uh, before I got up, the fire marshal had come in because we, were, we had packed the place out. We had too many people in there. So Mitch Glazer from Chosen People in Brooklyn, New York, who had organized the debate, he got up and said, listen, we are beyond capacity. We need, I don't know, like 100, 150 people to leave. And he said, if you agree with Mike's position, this is the one and only debate Shmuley and I did where he went first, I went second. So after that, he's always asked me to go first, and I've consented. But uh, Mitch got up and said, if you think that you will agree with Dr. Brown, we ask you to leave. Because <laughs> uh, people had to leave. And he wanted believers to leave so that people who didn't believe and didn't agree with our position would get to hear me bring my position. So that, that's what happened that night. But I remember when I got up to speak, it was the first time Rabbi Shmuley and I have since become dear friends. I, I mean that from the heart, D dear friends. And he would say the exact same thing. And, and I've had many, many times of talking from the heart as dear friends one to another. But uh, I remember getting up to speak that night 
And still there were plenty of people who, who were believers that were in there, even when I got up to speak. But even when I walked in and the place was more packed and we had even more believers in the room and it was quite a mixed crowd, I remember them looking at me and it was, it was kind of like an athletic event. Maybe you've got a boxing match and two world champions, one from Puerto Rico, one from Mexico. It's, it's like an epic struggle between them. When Manny Pacquiao fights from the Philippines, he feels like he's carrying the, the weight of his nation on him. World Cup soccer slash football, World Cup soccer, you, you know, the, the players represent the nations and they carry the nation. I really felt on my shoulders the burden of the Messianic Jewish community and that if I could do well, if I could answer well, if I could present the truth in a coherent and clear and compelling way, that it would strengthen believers. It's, it's part of apologetics. And they, in turn, would be stronger in their witness, stronger in their faith, stronger in their outreach. It would have this holy ripple effect. We come back. I'm going to interact with Rabbi Shmuley. Oh, he's not physically here, but we're going to interact with his Facebook clip. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hoshiana, oh, save, is from that Hebrew word that we get, Hosanna in Greek, and then Hosanna just becomes a word of praise. Hey, welcome to Thirdly Jewish Thursday on the Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. A reminder to all of our friends in the DFW area that I'm scheduled to be ministering in your area on Sunday, Sunday morning, two services for Mercy Culture. So Sunday morning, two services at Mercy Culture in Fort Worth, and then Sunday night, 6 p.m., speaking for Todd White at his gathering on Sunday night. All the details are on our website, sdrbrownaskdrbrown.org. Just click on itinerary. And if you appreciate the broadcast, if you want to help us reach the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and obviously that's something important in God's sight, then stand with us, pray for us, share our materials with others, and stand with us financially. You can click on the donate button on the Ask Dr. Brown page, you can click on the dollar sign in the YouTube chat or on our website, askdrbrown.org. Okay. A few years back, how long ago? Oh, maybe 15 years ago, Rabbi Shmuley and I did a debate in New York City on Isaiah 53 answering the question, did Jesus die for our sins? We still have the debate featured on our website in the store at askdrbrown.org. Well, I'm not quite sure what drew this to Rabbi Shmuley's attention, but he posted this three-something-minute video on Facebook interacting with that debate we had and explaining why he strongly differs with the concept that Yeshua could die for our sins. So I broke down the clip into a few parts. Let's listen to what my dear friend Rabbi Shmuley had to say. This morning I was looking at a, a DVD of a debate that I had with my friend Dr. Michael Brown, uh, a Jewish believer in Jesus about whether Jesus can atone for your sins. Jesus cannot atone for our sins because the Bible is all about personal accountability. It's all about personal responsibility. 
No one can atone for your sins. Only you can repent of your sins. Only you can take responsibilities, show true remorse and regret, and take action to atone for your sins. Well, exactly. Jesus doesn't repent for us. Jesus doesn't take away our responsibility. His death on the cross pays a debt that we could not pay, just as the atonement system was built into the life of Israel. And, and even the Day of Atonement, which centers on repentance in Judaism in the, in the Bible, in Leviticus 16, at the heart of it was blood sacrifice and substitutionary atonement, the so-called scapegoat carrying the sins off into the wilderness and the other goat dying. So shedding of blood was essential for atonement. But it's both and. Both and. So notice what Rabbi Shmuley said. Jesus can't atone for your sins. You have to take personal responsibility and and repent. (laughs) Yes, of course you have to take personal responsibility and repent. That message is preached throughout the New Testament. It's often been said, repent is the first word of the gospel. I can demonstrate that to you from Matthew to Revelation. Literally, the foundational nature of the preaching of repentance in the New Testament from John the Immerser to Yeshua himself to the 12 disciples to Paul, right through the New Testament. I can show you that. But atonement is something else. Atonement has to do with cleansing. Atonement has to do with expiation. Atonement has to do with setting a record right. So yes, you repent, and there's also blood atonement. It was both and. So no, Jesus doesn't repent for us. We are called by him to turn to God in repentance but he pays for our sins. It's both and, and I could make that case just using the Hebrew Bible. All right, back to Rabbi Shmuley. Judaism rejects utterly the idea of human sacrifice. God calls it an abomination in the Torah. That was specifically what God rejected when Abraham was prepared to bring up his son as a human sacrifice. God also completely rejects the idea that we are responsible for the sins of ancestors, the the idea of original sin. So Ezekiel 18 is clear that no person will die for the sin of their fathers. No person will die for the sin of their mothers, no son, no daughter, because we alone are accountable for our sins. So original sin, where Adam and Eve committed some terrible blunder, some spiritual abomination, and that is passed on, to all generations necessitating the death of the savior of God's only son on the cross is a is a idea not just foreign to Judaism but an idea that uh, tears at the very fabric of Judaism we reject it utterly it doesn't mean we don't respect our Christian brothers and sisters it means that we have very different theological approaches to sin all right I, I am not responsible for Adam's sin I'm responsible for my sin but his fall affected us all Judaism talks about the effects of Adam's sin and talks about him as this giant being that could stride around the earth, you know, shining like the sun, just in a few strides could cover the earth, and then everything got messed up because of the sin of Adam and Eve. So while Judaism may not have the exact same concept of the fall or original sin, it recognizes the fall of the human race, and then as a fallen race, we all sin, every single one of us, and we are all responsible for our sin. So if I'm being judged by God, I'm not being judged because of Adam's sin. I'm being judged because of my sin. I am, I am a sinner because I'm a descendant of Adam, but I'm responsible for my own sin and need to come to God for mercy. As for human sacrifice, the New Testament, Christian faith, Messianic Jewish faith, categorically reject human sacrifice. God forbid 
We'd ever think of it for a split second. Yeshua says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. What he's basically saying is, let them go free. Take me instead. You say, well, that's not a Jewish concept. Of course it is. Of course it is. Famous Talmudic concept, mitatan shel tzadikim techaper. The death of the righteous atones. It's, it's felt right to this day. When, when a famous rabbi will die at his funeral, they'll say, may his death be an atonement for our generation. No, it's not human sacrifice. Rather, this is the concept that the human race guilty, the people of Israel guilty, we should be judged more severely. Then someone who's considered to be of exemplary righteousness dies. And, and that person dies. They didn't merit that death because they were so righteous, like they had a treasury of righteousness stored up. This is the concept, all right? So when they die, their, their death can pay for the sins lots of others have committed. So if those people will repent, they'll receive mercy or judgment will be withheld from a generation. That's also a Talmudic explanation for why little children died, innocent child dying for the sins of the generation. When there was a, a horrific massacre of four rabbis, religious Jews, praying in, in synagogue in, in Haranof, in the outskirts of Jerusalem, and Palestinian terrorists came in, Islamic terrorists came in and butchered them and, and shoot out with police. They die when the Jews' police is killed. But just a, a horrific bloodbath. The families wanted people to see the synagogue with the, not the bodies, but the blood. It was, just, it was horrific. And it was in a synagogue, early morning prayer. And one of the eulogies at one of the funerals said, because God was angry with, with Claudius Israel, with, with the people of Israel, with the community of Israel, that he took these righteous men as, as burnt offerings, as sacrifices, so their death would make an atonement for Israel. In fact, after Rabbi Shmuley and I had our debate about Isaiah 53, we went out to a kosher steakhouse in New York City. And while we were there, we got to talking with the, the waiter, who himself was an Orthodox Jew and well-trained in yeshiva, and when he heard about what the debate was, he goes, oh, did you bring in these sources? And starts to quote all the sources I had been quoting in the debate, because of course he's familiar with the concept of the atoning power of the death of the righteous. So God forbid we don't believe in human sacrifice, but we do believe in the atoning power of the death of the righteous. And of course, it's articulated most clearly in Isaiah 53, all of us like sheep have gone astray, each one turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the righteous one says, take my life instead, let the others go free. He pays the debt we couldn't pay. If we will now turn to God in repentance, we receive mercy. It's the gospel, and it's Jewish. All right, last comments from Rabbi Shmuley. And also, faith alone will never absolve you of sin. It's action, which is even more important than faith. That's another critical Jewish idea. So for all those reasons, a rejection of human sacrifice, rejection of the idea of of collective accountability, rejection of the idea that someone can atone for your sins, you alone can repent of your sins, rejection of the idea that faith is more important than actions. Uh, Judaism rejects all of that. What is real repentance is what Maimonides says. Maimonides says that if you've done something terrible, uh, you have to do, undertake four stages of repentance. The first is charata, Allah ovar. You have to actually regret what you did. You have to have the moral wherewithal and the moral courage to accept that what you did is wrong. Number two, you need to go and confess your sins. And usually it's confess, confessing it to the offended party, or sometimes it means confessing it to God. We're not only 
uh, in the Catholic tradition of, we're certainly not in the Catholic tradition of going and confessing it to a priest because we don't believe that a priest can absolve you of your sins. Again, no rabbi, no priest has that, has that power. Number three, you have to undertake restorative action, usually through charity or fasting, or you have, to, you have to undertake action, not just words. Confession is words. You have to take, undertake restorative action. Number four, you need to change your ways in the future. Those are the four ways of repentance. And hence we reject the idea that Jesus can, can atone for our sins. All right, so we explained that we don't believe in human sacrifice, but we do believe in the concept of the atoning power of the death of the righteous, and the only one who's perfectly righteous is the Messiah himself. We made clear that we do believe in personal responsibility. We do believe in true repentance, not just in the Gospels you have this preached, but Paul, for example, Acts 26, 20 said, I preach that people should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. Prove their repentance by their deeds. So faith alone is never alone. In other words, true faith is always accompanied by change. True faith is always accompanied by works. That's why Jacob James says, show me your faith. I'll, you got faith, great. I'll show you my faith by my works. My works will be the evidence of my faith. So that, that's why repentance is preached so clearly throughout the whole New Testament, that when you truly put your faith in God, Lord, save me from my sins, then the fruit of that, the reality of that, is God's grace now helping us change the way we live. But we're confident of this. We cannot save ourselves. All of our best efforts will fall infinitely short. We need the blood of Messiah to take our place, the perfectly righteous one who takes our judgment so that we could receive mercy if we turn to God in faith and repentance. That's the message of the New Testament. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to The Line of Fire that Jewish music reminds you Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, 866-34-TRUTH. All right, going back to the phones in a moment. Fascinating article on Forward, forward.com. After Charlottesville, black and Jewish Americans can't afford to let our differences divide us. What's fascinating, it's by Jonathan Greenblatt and Nick Cannon. Nick Cannon, TV star, but Disney star as a kid, whatever, but, you know, prominent entertainer for years lost his job with Viacom after some horrific anti-Semitic, anti-white comments. But then he's really been on a repentance tour about his anti-Semitic comments and has even found out that, according to his mother, that I think his mother's great-grandfather was a rabbi. In any case, it's co-authored by them. Uh, I'm not going to read through the article now, but Nick Cannon is, is really... He's getting pushback over this. Uh, Nick Cannon's getting pushback because he has uh, he has said that he's sorry for making these comments. Others said, no, the Jews have all the power and you shouldn't have backed down, etc. But he was on a broadcast with a rabbi 
And this statement was made by the rabbi that no group has suffered more for its faith than the Jewish people, and no group has suffered more for its race than black people. Now, obviously, persecuted Christians around the world through the centuries have suffered terribly, but since the Jews have normally been the minority group religiously in the countries in which they lived, and they lived in professing Christian lands and, and Muslim lands, that uh, often, with great regularity, Jews, simply for being Jews, were persecuted, hated, rejected. So it's an interesting statement. Uh, I've always felt there was a special commonality between Jews and blacks. For whatever reason, I just felt it in my spirit and felt it as a believer with, with black believers. But that's an interesting way to, to bring a connection, that Jews have suffered more for their faith as a people Blacks have suffered more for their race as a people. So more than any other group for their faith, Jews have suffered more than any other group for their race. Blacks have suffered. It's an interesting way of putting it. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, we go to Eddie in New Haven, Connecticut. Welcome to the line of fire. Dr. Brown, how you doing, my friend? Good, man. Good to hear from you, buddy. Here's my question, Dr. Brown. I always ask crazy, well, not crazy, but maybe it sounds crazy, but... In our Bible study, we're talking about, in the Torah, how would God ever convey that he alone did something? Because as Christianity looks back, we're saying, well, that was, you know, that's the Trinity. That's the Trinity. But if the Father, Yahweh, wanted to say, no, I, besides me, there's nobody but me, how would he say that? And the reason I'm asking was, the other day I cut the grass at my house, and my wife came home, she said, who cut the grass? I said, I did. And when my kid came home later, tired, she said, why are you tired? He said, well, I cut the grass. And then my wife said to me, I thought you cut the grass. I said, well, me, him, what the... I said, it's like the Bible, hun. We all did it together. We're one. Well, I made a joke of it, but the point I'm saying is, how would God, if he wanted to really tell us that he alone did something, we can never, we can never grasp that, because we would always go back to saying, well, the Father, the Son, the Spirit did. Right, so, so here's the, the Jewish argument would be that God repeatedly says it, for example, in, in the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 48, I alone am God, there was no one with me. I created the heavens and the earth. I did it alone. So the great right. emphasis of the Bible is there's one God and one God only. And, and we need to shout that from the rooftops. There's one God and one God only. And the whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, shouts that out equally. There's one God and one God only. The question is, how does God describe himself? How do the prophets and others describe him? Is, is he complex in his oneness? And I say the answer to that is yes. So the same Bible that tells me there's one God and one God alone also tells me that this one God is complex in his unity. So that's how he can be visible and yet vi invisible, touchable and yet transcendent at the same time. So not quite the same as your lawn analogy, buddy, but thanks for the question. <laughs> right. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Sure thing. So again, we affirm that the scriptures emphatically teach on God's behalf that he alone is God. There's one God and one God only, and only this God created the universe, and nobody was with him when he did it. The question is, what's the nature of this God? And that's where we understand he's complex in his unity. All right, let's go over to Tom's River, New Jersey. Mariam, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. Hello. Mariam here. Hey. 
I recently um, was reading a newspaper article, and in the article, they were talking about communities that are nearby that are expanding uh, with Orthodox Judaism. And one of the things they described was a township council had passed an ordinance banning the construction of, pardon my pronunciation, I'm not sure this is right, but it's Eruven. Yeah, er, 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 Eruv is is singular, Eruvin is plural. Yeah. Eruvin, okay. Yeah, Eruvin. They banned the construction of Eruvin, wires that symbolically allow Orthodox Jews to carry objects during the Sabbath. Yeah. I was hoping that you could explain what that is and uh, why I understand there, uh, you know, would be, uh, you know, observing the Sabbath, but how that uh, Erovine figures into the equation for uh, Sabbath behavior. Yep, yep, absolutely. And I was just looking online as we're uh, talking. Uh, If you you search just for what is an Eruv, so that's a singular, mm-hmm. uh, Eruv, and then plural, Eruvin. So the I-N is the plural in, in Aramaic. Uh, so you'll find an article on Chabad.org, that's C-H-A-B-A-D, Chabad.org. That'll give you the Jewish traditional background to that. But here's, here's the situation. Um, and it's, it's, it's a complex subject in Talmud and Jewish law, and I'm absolutely not an expert on the complexities of it, but of course know the basics. So... In Jeremiah, the 17th chapter, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, are rebuked for carrying loads on the Sabbath. So obviously they're doing business, they're bringing, you know, carrying sacks of things, you know, getting ready for business, etc., and it's on the Sabbath. So God makes it clear that's work and that's sinful. The question is, what are you allowed to carry and not allowed to carry? Now, the, the plain reading of the text, the second half of Jeremiah 17, the plain reading is it, it was work-related. In other words, they were, they were carrying loads on the Sabbath, and God said, you can't carry. But traditional Judaism has taken that all the way to say, you can't carry. So I remember when I, I spent Yom Kippur with the Babacher Hasidim, ultra-Orthodox Jews, in Brooklyn, New York, around 1975, that I had hay fever at that time. And I was stuffing some tissues in my pocket, and they said, no, no, you can't carry, because this is a Sabbath, it's a holy day. You can't carry it. <laughs> I can't carry tissues. It's not exactly a burden. It's not like work. They said, no, but you'll find pre-ripped tissues in the synagogue. So there are certain things you are allowed to carry, like, for example, a prayer book, or for a man, phylacteries, the, the, the prayer boxes that he put on, on hand and forehead, or certain things like that, or, or maybe something to, uh, you know, a baby stroller that you have to pick up or carry or put somewhere. So what rabbinic Judaism did is come up with kind of a, a loophole, you could say, and say that within this area, this is going to be designated, this is in a roof, you can carry a prayer book, or you can carry this, you know, uh, stuff you need, change your diapers for your baby, or, or whatever. So there are certain things, not, not anything, but certain things within that you could carry in that area, and therefore you would not be subject to the Sabbath restrictions against carrying. So my own understanding is this went beyond anything the Scripture was ever teaching in terms of laws against carrying, and then this was constructed as a loophole to make life workable, because Jewish laws are, are constantly looking to try to, to make the laws workable in everyday life. But it would be, let's just yeah. say, th- complete theoretical, 
for a one-block radius around the synagogue or a one-mile radius because people live in that community, that that's an Eruv because you can't, you can't drive on the Sabbath, so you're walking on the Sabbath, right? So, Thomas River, you're right near Lakewood, New Jersey, which has the, the largest yeah. yeshiva um, and men's study center for rabbinic Judaism in America, one of the largest in the world, but the largest in America. I visited there many years ago with a, a rabbi friend of mine. Uh, so you'll have a ravine in that area around certain synagogues. So you walk to the synagogue on the Sabbath. You can carry as long as you're carrying certain items and as long as it is within that proximity. Now, why there would be rules against that, I'd, I'd have to find out more. You know, I'm not familiar with what you just mentioned, but that, that's what it right. is. You're allowed to carry well, within this area, and it, it makes the Sabbath more viable and doable for a religious Jewish family that's walking to and fro synagogue on the Sabbath. Right, right. The um, the news article was, uh, I guess, bringing up what uh, decision had been passed down in an adjacent town, which is Jackson, New Jersey, mm-hmm. which has an expanding population. Now, uh, my thought is, if this aerovin is uh, tangible, it's an actual wire, right. and maybe people are viewing it as something they don't want to See, right, right. They are, you know, not yeah, that, that would make sense, as opposed to it's just a theoretical area. But hey, we're going to get this right. An Eruv, it's singular. So if you want to say okay. an Eruv, hey, we got to do it right here. An Eruv, okay. or okay. generically speaking, Eruvine. But if you'll just look that up, what is an Eruv? You'll find a helpful little article to give you the Jewish background to it. So again, to me, its origins come from a misunderstanding of the laws about carrying. Again, so restrictive, you have to kind of find a loophole. Rabbinic Judaism will all think it's part of something that God gave. All right, friends, back with you tomorrow. You've got questions. We've got answers. <laughs>